And then I was thinking about it and I kept thinking about it for years and would talk about it. And then I was like, why do I think that every Middle Eastern character is the same? Because two characters are from Iraq, they're the same exact person? That they think the same way and that the character work to try to get inside them is the same? Like, absolutely not. That's not the case. Hello everyone, it's Rhoda, and I'm so excited to be back with you for another episode of the Assyrian Podcast. This week's episode is our 178th episode, which is entirely wild, but I'm happy to bring you a conversation with Martin Yusuf Zabari. Martin was born in Iraq and immigrated to the U.S. in 2002. He is an actor and playwright and has such a great sense of self and he brings a level of authenticity and earnestness to our conversation about really broad and heavy topics like the meaning of home, intersectionality of identities, queerness, and Assyrianism that I really appreciated. I have always appreciated that we could bring you, our listeners, the stories of so many Assyrians from around the world, and Martin's story is no different. If you are someone who is walking a walk similar to his, I hope this conversation makes you feel less alone And if you're someone who hasn't had the opportunity to encounter a story of an Assyrian like Martin, then I hope this story opens your heart and mind to how each of us can find meaning in the work we do and how that work, as a culmination of who we are as people, can bring us closer to our Assyrian identity, no matter who we are. This episode is brought to you by all of us here at the Assyrian Podcast. If you want to join us as a co-host, nominate someone to be our next guest, or find out how to sponsor one of our episodes or seasons, check us out at AssyrianPodcast.com. And now, without further ado, here is Martin Yusuf Zabari. Martin, welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to finally being here and speaking with you. Me too. I'm so looking forward to our conversation. You were born in Iraq and you moved to the United States 20 years ago. Before we talk about the kind of immigration story and how you got here, can you talk a little bit about where you and your family are from and what you remember from your life in Iraq? I was born in Baghdad. Um, My family had been living in Baghdad for a couple years, but my dad is from Mosul and my mom is from Dahok. And their parents, so they came to Iraq by way of Turkey and Iran. And then they started their, they met and started their family in Iraq. Uh, All my siblings, I have five older siblings, um, were all born all throughout Iraq, honestly, just depending on like where my parents were um, based on my dad's job. And then I was born in Baghdad. I lived there for about six years uh, until I was six. And then we, uh, my dad was trying to get us to get approved to immigrate to the U.S. Um, The options were kind of like U.S. or Australia, and it happened to be the U.S. for us. And so we ended up moving to the U.S., but it took three years. And in that three years, I lived in Syria, Damascus. And that was just kind of like an in-between point where we could get out of Iraq. But 
um, have somewhere to be until our kind of like immigration papers were accepted and done and finalized. And so, yeah, I consider like Iraq is like where I'm from, but Syria, I feel like even as a kid is like where all the plotting happened, where I like oversaw all the like plans being made and the, you know, the the journey of everyone and, you know, how everyone was going to disperse basically um, apart and away from each other. And so then in 2002, uh, we finally came here. We were not all together anymore. My brother and my sis, my oldest two siblings had already left Iraq and moved to Australia by that point. And so it was me and my three sisters and my parents who moved to Skokie, Illinois. Yeah, and then I was there all throughout high school and then I went away for college and that's kind of when I left Skokie and went on to explore the rest of the world as I felt like I had missed as a kid. Tell me about Syria. Was there a large Assyrian population sort of in limbo in Syria when you were there? That's a good question. My first response is probably because I know that like, for example, we lived in this, we lived in this like two floor house in Syria. We didn't like, we didn't have our own place. So we like lived with another, like another family lived upstairs, but it was all one house. It's not like how apartments are now where they're actually split up. It was literally the steps upstairs led to their house. So they had to like, you know, come into ours to go upstairs. Um, and they were Christian, they weren't Assyrian, but I imagine that my family had a community of people. I know that Syria is full of Christians and a lot of Syriac folks. Um, so I imagine that my family probably found a community of Assyrians. Um, but honestly, any questions that are about my environmental, like the environmental parts of my childhood, like the country and how it felt and what it looked like and what the people were, is really distorted. It's not really a complete memory of it. I, I think now as an adult, I look back and I think I was completely dissociating as a kid and not really aware. Like, I yeah, when I have memories, they're not of the place. They're of like my family, me, things I did, things I thought, things I felt. But they're never about place and they're never really about like, you know, just like, um, how something looks or, you know, even when I think back to like, what did my neighborhood look like? I can't really remember. I don't know. I don't think I was. And when nowadays, when I hear people my age talk about their childhoods in a really detailed way, I'm just like, what? You remember things when you were eight? Like, <laughs> I feel like my knowledge of memories started as a teenager when i when i said earlier like exploring the world as a kid i don't i didn't mean literally like traveling as a child yeah. but just being able to like recall things or make memories ones that didn't feel like trauma responses <laughs> ones that felt like oh i am actually making like a good memory that i will remember and not something that i'm just remembering because it was horrible so like no core memories from that time that like you can really like cling to not really i mean i remember some like kind of embarrassing like one embarrassing story that happened i remember another time being like hurt by a firework like my hand got burned but they're really you know all the like moments are sporadic and they're not really tied to a context tied to a story necessarily yeah so i've been piecing and making it up <laughs> sure that that has to be a 
a trauma response moving around a lot and not not having a place to like truly call home as a kid my version of that is i'm gonna blow your mind but i have a very vivid memory of the first house we ever lived in or i ever lived in i was two when we left this house but like i have yeah. literally taken a piece of paper and drawn the like blueprint of the house and showed it to my mom and said is this what it looked like and she said yes and like she doesn't know how i remember and i don't either because all the pictures of me in this house i am a baby and we left yeah. that too but my version of that is you know how sometimes people will talk about you know like the a country they're from and they'll say back home and that sounds weird on my tongue like i can't say that because none of the places where i've lived have ever felt like home oh, even if i've been there for a long time so that's like my version of like what you're describing no completely and actually hearing you talk about that i'm like oh i totally remember the house i was born in like i was a baby and honestly i I don't remember the layout, but I have told my mom things that she's like, how do you know that? You were a child. And I'm like, I don't know. I honestly can't tell you what, el what else happened that day or even what else happened that year. But there will be this like specific thing that I'll recall. And I totally remember the house because I think I remember like the, like the first couple years before you like know about like displacement and immigration and any of any of that crosses your mind you're just kind of making learning about the world and like i remember certain things that i remember teaching me you know what i mean like moments that taught me or like a place i always used to like to play in in this yard that i remember very vividly even though i you know ask me what the neighborhood looks like and i wouldn't be able to like at all so you came to the United States in 2002, which is a year after 9-11, but just before the war started. Yep. I've got to know what your experience was like coming here as a, what, you were like nine or 10? I was nine. And honestly, it was great. I didn't know what 9-11 was. And I remember I came in the summer after 9-11 so i remember in the fall when we came into school it was my i didn't speak english and we went out the whole school was called to like an assembly outside in the front where the flag was and we all kind of did the pledge of allegiance some people talked i did had no clue what was happening and i think back and laugh at all the looks that i probably was getting that i did not realize because I was just like, I don't know what they're talking about. Couldn't possibly be, you know, about me or my, you know, um, not that it was obviously about me, but like, right. I think back to those now and I'm like, yeah, were those kids like scared? Were they like, oh my God, he's from that area. Like he just came, he doesn't even, you know, I have no clue, but yeah, I was completely oblivious to that until we learned about it in school, like in a history class which I don't even think was till like high school. So, in a, yeah, so in a way like that discrimination, racism never crossed my mind. I honestly came and I was, I knew that my, the school had kind of told my parents like, we'll give them six months to 
continue right where he left off in school because I had just finished the third grade in in Enoch. And so they basically said, if he learns English in the next six months, we'll let him continue in the fourth grade. And if he doesn't, we'll have to start him from first just so that he like gets it all. Um, miraculously, I learned it very quickly, but that came at the cost of me losing my Arabic, forgetting how to read and write in Arabic. I used to also know how to read and write in Assyrian, and I forgot that. I still speak Assyrian and Arabic, obviously, but it makes me sad that I can't read and write them because it's definitely affected, like, my fluency in them both. Yeah, so in a way, I, you know, I, I yeah, I, I didn't feel like any of the, even that pressure to kind of like learn English. I, I didn't feel, I didn't, it didn't feel like a pressure or, you know, something. My parents weren't really hard on me or anything. I, it just kind of happened and I quickly learned it. And I think it's because I was so young. I, you know, it was before I had really even dug into like grammar and stuff in my home languages. So it wasn't like I was throwing away so much to learn something. It was just like, I was still a young, young person. And yeah. You were a sponge. I was a sponge, exactly. And I, I did exactly what, you know, I think sponges do. <laughs> exactly what a sponge would do. Did you know about the whole six month timeline at the time or you weren't aware? No, I think actually, no. I think my dad told me that like a couple, not a couple years later, but like years later when he was telling, you know how Assyrian parents like will brag about you about the weirdest things but won't like acknowledge your accomplishments like that <laughs> I have a play happening at the Goodman they don't care but like the fact that I learned English so fast they were just telling everyone my dad would just like yeah we you know we almost thought he'd have to like start over but he didn't he learned it and and I'm just like I just watched tv and cartoons and learned it like I it's not like I like studied at home extra you know I was just a kid so I asked that because I wonder if like not having that pressure just kind of made you made the learning process so much more organic for you and you just were like okay I'm just doing my thing you know yeah I think honestly I think a huge part of that is that my parents and my whole family was going through a huge adjustment process themselves that I don't even think they had time to be like, oh, is he learning it in time? You know, it just kind of like happened. I think their their priority was to take care of us and, you know, get jobs <laughs> when they didn't speak the language. And, you know, my dad did, but like not fluently. He, he had learned it in school. And so, yeah, I think everyone was kind of uh, tied up in their own worries about assimilation that I don't think they had time to wonder about me or pressure me into learning English when they didn't even know, you know. Was there a point in your like high school career that you found yourself steering towards the arts or did that happen later? No, it was definitely in high school. Um, well, in yeah, in the sixth grade, I was I was in this play as a literally a made up character that that the you know, the teacher at the time, our director, I don't even remember that man's name, but he really was the start of it all because he cast me in that and made up a role for me, like made up some animal, like I was the leopard or something, um, just so that I could be in it. And because I did, I barely knew English still. And that really got me like, whoa, this is cool. Like getting to dress up as someone else. And like, I, it felt like I wasn't bullied in like 
during the play, everyone was treating me nicely, or at least to my perception. And it was different because I was just always teased for like, I mean, now I think about it and I'm like, probably for my act, I probably had an accent when I was learning English. And the fact that I was different, looked different, didn't really hang out with the kids. I wasn't like a popular kid at all. I had a very like, you know, the weirdos were my friends. So I think in a, when I finally found a space that I was like, felt like myself in and like, people were really like, even in sixth grade, people were like, just too busy with the work to like make fun of each other or bully each. It was like, we were all like little tiny artists. We were like, why is this play important? You know, even though we didn't know anything about the world. And so that made me, you know, that intrigued me. And then in high school, <laughs> I've told this person, I, um, a dear friend of mine in high school, her name is Sophie. She was like in a family of artists, like all of her siblings were artists. Her, their parents like were, very supportive and like all the siblings had gone to theater school or music school. And I remember, I don't know why, but I remember like before we were friends wanting to impress her. I don't know why, I have no clue. But one day she, you know, we were talking, it was like early high school. We had, we were literally freshmen and she was, I overheard her talking about signing up for theater class. And I was like, well, I'm gonna, like in my head, I was like, I'm going to sign up for a theater class. I'll show her. I have no idea why I had this like thing to impress her or overdo. Like there was no reason for it. We barely even knew each other. But then I joined theater class literally because of her. I tell her now and, you know, she laughs now. But then I just, it just was, it was like from then on, it was, it was a, a done deal. I don't know how much you know about Niles North, but it's just like an incredible arts department, really great theater department. A lot of students that leave, a lot of theater students who go on to do theater in college and went to Niles North, like often they say the first year of college is a review because we had such an intense theater program for a high school to have. There were like a whole curriculum of classes, which no other high school had. There was like eight, probably 10 theater classes that you would take kind of in succession as you went up the, you know, the years in high school. And I took all of them. I took every single one of them. Those were always my, and Tim Ortman, who was, uh, who was the, who was the theater director and the theater teacher and director at the time. Yeah, was great. And I got so much out of that program that when I went to college, I, it really did feel like my entire first year was a review because I, we knew all the terminology. We, we didn't really understand it, but we like knew it. I was familiar with it all. And um, that really set me up honestly for a career in the arts because I, I think if it was not for Tim taking a chance on me, I thought I was a know-it-all and a smart ass and like, just thought like, I know everything. And I was, it's cause I was the youngest, but like, you know, was like too sure of myself as a child. And Tim like saw through all of that and really took a chance on me and was like, like, I, you know, I'm gonna not only give him opportunities to grow, but like kind of became like a parental figure in a way without, but he had his own special way of doing it, which did not cross boundaries or, you know, he was not trying to be my parent. It just like, I really saw him as like a parental figure because I felt like I couldn't really go to my own for theater and for those things or to talk to them about the arts or to be like, hey, I'm applying to college, you know, what do I, do? you know, they just had no knowledge of any of that. So yeah, so like Niles North set me up and like being in Skokie really set me up for like a good 
career in the arts. Um, even people who didn't end up going in the arts, who went to that high school, have found other beautiful ways to like bring that world and that training and all the things that we learned about each other and how to care for one another like into their own special jobs and that's that i think is just so cool the only thing i've ever known about niles north high school is that there are a lot of assyrians and that's pretty much the only thing i've ever known so this is really cool i know that in my high school we had like two theater classes like there was theater one and there was theater two and then yeah that's most high schools across the country yeah and they do like two shows a year that's they it did like 10. that's amazing it was a full season it was like a full professional season of shows and classes it was insane that's amazing insane. what's the first show you were a part of in high school that like really meant something to you? Um, the first one that really meant something to me, I mean, in a way, all of them meant something to me because I literally could not believe that I was repeatedly cast in these shows, um, first of all. And second of all, that I was like being told I was good at this. I, I couldn't, cause I was still in my mind very insecure about knowing English and having a good vocabulary. And, you know, I was always behind people, my, my peers because, you know, developmentally, because, like, I was watching Sesame Street at nine, and they were not. <laughs> they were like, what are you doing here, weirdo? So it was just, like, amazing to me that I was, like, good at something, that I felt good at something. I think, but I think, like, the first one that I felt like, whoa, I can do this in real life, was probably in my junior year. We did Rent, the musical, which is also insane that that, we did that musical in high school. Like, what? And it's the high school edition, but like it's mostly the same, except some bad words are taken out. Um, and that, but that was the first show that a I was diving into a world that I did not know existed about a very important part of this country's history that I did not know existed. So besides all the things that every show taught me, which was like the real life event that inspired this work that I didn't know existed. I wasn't like, if, if I was learning it in history class, it wasn't staying in my brain. But when I learned it in theater and in a rehearsal room, I was changed because of it. And, um, but that was the first show that I felt like, okay, I can actually do this. I think I can do this past high school. And I should like probably audition to some acting programs um, and not go the route my parents wish I had gone, which I'm sure you know what that route is. <laughs> several route the three routes that they have okayed and approved doctor engineer lawyer yeah that sounds right that sounds about right <laughs> speaking of your parents reaction did they ever come to any of your high school shows yes my during high school my dad was working abroad for most of those years um so my mom would come and she'd come with an aunt or she'd come with actually to rent she couldn't come <laughs> my sister and her husband or at the time her boyfriend um but you know like a syrian boyfriend where they were he was already approved by the parents um came to that and I, after telling them like, no one needs to come to this, it's all good. Cause I was just kind of like really scared about their reaction. Um, and then my sister and him came and I remember they loved it. And I didn't know if they lied or if they did, but 
they really liked it. But anyways, yes, um, my mom really loved watching coming and supporting and watching, even though she had no clue what was happening, did not understand anything, still doesn't really speak English. I mean, she understands a little bit, but. And then the first thing my dad saw me in was a voice recital, like a con a voice concert recital that my music teacher uh had us do like a little night of like for the seniors the graduating seniors and he had just come back home so that was really special because it's his first time seeing me perform and he watched that video that he recorded that night literally like several times a week for the next like four years <laughs> that's really special to the point where like people were like annoyed with him they were like you need to stop you had this on all day and of course i didn't live with, i haven't lived with them since high school so i wasn't there for all the playing of this and i was away i was abroad actually for college afterwards and so i would just come home and they're like he's still watching the videos i'm like wow it's just one song like it's just a one song that he just yeah so that was a phase of his um he like cycles through between it's very special how they support me it's they're very supportive of me becoming an artist, but also in a similar way to wanting me to do something more stable, they kind of view, I don't think they will view me as a successful artist until I'm like what they consider famous. So there's still like, my mom is still like, you still are finding your way. And I'm like, I'm literally a working artist. I have been for like 10 years. It, this is the way <laughs> like if I'm if I have a giant break, that's great and all, but that isn't going to determine my success. I'm already doing it. And she like they won't they don't understand because I'm like not making million, you know, or like a lot of money. We're working on it. It's a work in progress. We've had several guests who have talked about this. And I remember somebody describing it. I don't remember who who this was, but. I remember this like notion sticking with me that like our parents moved here to give us a more a stable life and they worked so hard to give us that stable life that all of the reasons they want us to pursue all of these careers that they deem successful are because they know the reason why they moved here and so when we don't pursue those routes um and when we don't measure up to what they consider successful which like to them ultimately means having a, a good amount of money and living comfortably then it feels like what did i do all They're of that failing. and i i wonder sometimes if like some of that is more about themselves than it is about us one thousand percent couldn't agree with you more literally i've been talking to my friends about a conversation I had with my mom recently where she started crying on the phone. First of all, she like sent me, she had my dad send me like 50 bucks, which I never asked for. And then she calls me and she's like, your dad sends you money because like you need it. And I was like, I'm okay. And she was like, no, you're miserable. And I'm like, mom, I'm okay. I don't need money. Like she, it's like a complete story that she has formed in her head that I am not doing okay and that I must be like couch surfing or like just relying on it, you know, just like asking people for, I'm like, why don't you think I would come to you and ask you for money? Like I would, I know that you're there 
you I know you don't have much to give, but I know you would, you know, help. But like it's just insane. I'm just like you're creating the story in your head and then you are hurting from it. I'm not hurting from it because I'm fine. <laughs> Yeah, and you're so you're right. It's like, but I can't just say like, "Mom, this is a problem you have to work on." No, of course not. Because <laughs> her whole thing is like trying to protect me, and I'm like, I appreciate that, but also I'm okay. You said you went abroad for college. I started at Illinois State in normal Illinois, and I am um, halfway through. I decided to go study abroad in England. I stayed. I asked the school when I was there if I could transfer my credits and stay there and graduate from there instead of going back. And they were very open and understanding and helped me figure out all the transferring of credits and stuff. So I went, I graduated from the Arts University of Bournemouth in Bournemouth, England, on the southern coast, like two and a half hours south of London. That's amazing. Yeah. It was really amazing. It was really amazing. It, the it's funny thinking about it now. The town where I went to school is like it's like old retired British people and then students. That's those are the only two people who occupy the town. Um, so it's not it's not somewhere I would ever choose to live now. But at the time, it was exactly what I needed. I needed to like go as far away from my family as possible. Like I also didn't feel like the training I was getting here was like practical enough for me or something it felt really like not based in like actually understanding what an like what a career as an artist was um and so i think going to like uh an acting school specifically an acting school in england like really really helped me contextualize this like thing that i was doing into an actual career as opposed to like this I'm not saying that every teacher at ISU was doing that, but definitely had a more like stable, solid foundation for training and felt like really ready to tackle on the world. Um, and I don't remember feeling like that in the US. And so I went and got like a really classic kind of classical and just like classic good foundation for um, for training and felt really like better about that than I had in the US. I was looking at your um, portfolio and like kind of the plays you've uh, been in and I saw a mixture of like Shakespeare and then plays that like from the names, uh, either the character names or the plays themselves just screamed like something that has to do with the Middle East or, yeah. you know, like that region of the world. I, mean, I was just wondering about like, that kind of balance and like what kind of role do you feel most comfortable in that's such a good question i talk about this a lot i talk about this a lot with my friends because i felt like and this makes sense this, i'm not like confused about why this happens but it felt like before i started doing theater professionally i was able to like explore everything under the sun in high school i was in shows that I would never be cast in as an adult. And I didn't know that at the time. And people would say it, like our director would sometimes tell us that, like, this isn't your type professionally, but I want you to, but I didn't understand why. I was like, why? I completely connect to this character just cause like, and then, you know, finding out more things, I'm like, oh, this is a plantation owner. Now I understand the context and why my teacher was like, this is, you know, not roles you'd play. But it just, 
felt like, oh, no, I could do anything. I'm an actor. Um, but I've been pigeonholed as an as a professional actor. I've been completely pigeonholed in like as if I can only work on Swana plays or Middle Eastern plays. Um, and I, I, my training was not in that. My training was in Shakespeare and like all the classics, you know, what we, what I was, when I was younger, what I considered classics, which now aren't classics to me because they're all written by dead white men. And so there, there needed to be some variation. Um, but that, that was my like coming, kind of coming into theater. So it was really shocking when as an actor, I just like, I would only book the Middle Eastern stuff. And then I started being like, well, I don't want to be pigeonholed, I, uh, you know? And like, I, I started hearing from my community, like, I don't want to play the same character over and over again and all this stuff. And then I was thinking about it and I kept thinking about it for years and would talk about it. And then I was like, why do I think that every Middle Eastern character is the same? Like that is internalized racism that I am carrying with me and that other people are carrying with them that like, because two characters are from Iraq, they're the same exact person that they think the same way and that the character work to try to get inside them is the same. Like, absolutely not. That's not the case. So then I started getting like really proud and excited that I was only working on <laughs> Middle Eastern plays, even though that was like, you know, pigeonholing myself more but it just felt like what needed to happen. And then the more I grew up and started making more friends and more friends who were writers and kind of like, I like I would say when I look at my resume, it's like mostly a majority of my work is like new Middle Eastern plays or Middle Eastern characters. And that is so special to me because I, I, I don't take credit for those experiences in any way, but I helped in the making of a, bunch of new Middle Eastern work and some of the roles I didn't enjoy playing or portraying because um, they didn't feel like but once I you know once I really like stepped back and was like why do I view playing Middle Eastern characters as like not interesting as an actor or not um, fulfilling or challenging enough it's like every one of these characters is wildly different I started being like you know what just put me in this Middle Eastern plays because those are the my favorite rooms, those always end up being like the rooms that I feel like most comfortable in, the most amazing, fulfilling conversations happen. I mean, not just Middle Eastern, BIPOC in general, but like, you know, because I was just in these rooms repeatedly, it, I started feeling really proud about that and like started marketing myself kind of in with that in mind. Like, you know, I put that everywhere. Now, whenever I apply to jobs within the theater or not, I'm like, I have contributed to a bunch of new works. I like now know as an actor and as a writer how to be in a room where a new work is being developed and really like know what to think about, what to bring up, the things that I should be looking out for, um, what in the script should I be focusing on, things like that. So that's just like, yeah, that's a very long answer to your question, but. One of the things I was gonna actually ask you about was just storytelling in general both in um we'll talk about um your um play in a second but just in terms of storytelling you know as a reader or an audience member of a play like you go in with 
is it Coolridge? He says, willing suspension of disbelief. Like you are willingly suspending disbelief, right? Because fiction by definition is fictitious and not real. And yet in order for me to successfully suspend disbelief, those characters have to bring some veracity and believability, right? So I was wondering about that in terms of like this work that you've done because you playing a character with that background is a lot more believable than someone who might not be from that background, right? Like it's the reason why there's a lot of rage about characters who portray other people. And it's like, why though? Like you are not from the same sexual orientation or you're not, um, you don't even look like the person, you know, like you're not from the same background. And so in order for me to buy this story, I also have to believe that this character that you've created will do and say the things that you're telling me they do and say. Uh And so I was wondering about how you take that into account when you are both acting, but also when you're writing, like, how do you handle that balance? Just for, just for my brain that takes long time to process things. Will you just one more time, tell me striking the balance between exactly what? Yeah. So like this creating of these characters that are made up, Mm -hmm. but also like making them, believable um oh, so absolutely. someone absolutely. like taking that in can say like you know like i don't know i often think about sometimes i'll believe a world you create that has fire breathing dragons if i can believe that those characters when they're saying and doing something like that fits with the character and who you have told me that person is so like that to me the work of like being creative and creating these things out of nothing um or you know maybe a small experience but also making them super believable so that someone can buy that story yeah i think i mean when you say it like that i think it's a beautiful encapsulation of like what writing is or what like you know, performance is because it is literally like, like you said, I think anything can be believed on stage if you show us why we should believe it. Um, I guess in my work, I think that like all my, all my characters or my experience so far writing characters and writing kind of like characters in worlds has been that like every character is serving a specific need or purpose. Um, and so, and I think that changes depending on the world you're building, but in Leolina, it, um, it's a, what I know about the characters is that they're a family and that they care deeply for one another, but don't always know how to show that to each other and don't always know how to listen to each other. And so, that being kind of like the thread or like the thing that I wanted to show about this family that has endured so much together, but still can't find a way to like connect. And so within that kind of goal, then each character kind of like serves a purpose for me in either like a relationship dynamic, like showing that kind of thread through a relationship dynamic or showing that through like a a tragic event happening and how a family deals with that 
or something as large as like immigrating to a whole new country and you're suddenly like your younger sibling's mom as opposed to just like your younger siblings. And so, yeah, I, I think every character for me is like born out of a need to help that story. And that's how also in the development of this work, that's how I start to know if a character is unnecessary or if a necessary character is not present because I'm like, oh, I have this need to show this and then I can't, why can't I? Why haven't I been able to? Oh, maybe it's through a character that I haven't written yet or, oh, it's too much that this character exists and is repeatedly telling us about why they are there. You know what I mean? It's like you can see the writers talking as opposed to the person. And then that's when I know like, okay, this character can actually go and everything that they're saying can still happen through the other people. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's like, I always ask myself, why is this character here? And what would happen if they were not? And I think that so far that's helped me kind of find authentic voices because if it feels like it's me speaking through another body then that's not authentic that's just maybe researched or something i love that because i can't tell you the number of times i've like watched i think this mostly happens in shows where you have so many episodes and you know you they have to come up with stories to tell but i often feel like they'll introduce a character just to have like checked a box or introduced a character but that character like had nothing to contribute to that story and i was like i could have done without that you know like this yeah. the the full plot could have moved forward so i love the the idea of like it's like the um who who said it like Chanel or Gucci or somebody said like before you leave the house you take off one accessory like you look at <laughs> Ex exactly I love bringing it back to fashion I love that <laughs> comparison it works, works so well especially within this fictional family where the matriarch is a fashion designer yeah that's exactly what Leah would say Let's I talk about your play, though. So, first of all, it got picked up by the Good Men, and it's going to be on in March and April of next year. Is that right? Um, just March. Okay. We'll, I'll, we'll be rehearsing in February, and then it'll be showing basically all of March. Um, okay. There will be some previews, and then an official opening, and then the rest of the run. But I think all of March is like performances. Okay, congratulations, first of Thank all. You. Thank you so much. Big effing deal. But also just how excited are you? I'm beyond excited. I, I'm, I feel like a, every time I think about it, I feel like a kid again. I, I feel like I'm like a, a childhood dream that I didn't know as a child is coming to, to life, which is really, really special. And it feels like a beautiful, beginning in a way. Yeah, I think like with all the cool things that I have been able to do as an artist, there's only so much time you can spend being excited and like freaking out because then reality sets in and you're like, okay, gotta pay rent, still don't have that this month. Boop, 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 check, check, check. Um, and then, you know, people think you're like, like, oh, you're a rich playwright now, aren't you? And I'm like, what, what? <laughs> What? So yeah, so incredibly excited and I'm, you know, beyond grateful, but also I'm proud. Like, as you should I'm be proud that not only because of the work I've done, 
but because we showed the good men last fall not just we the cast and the team but we as a community and everyone who came out to support it we showed them what they are missing from their seasons that they have not been doing and we showed them that we exist and that there will be people to support this work if you center them and if you listen to them and i'm not speaking about the goodman as an institution now because that's its own whole thing when you become when you're an institution but in terms of the people who i have gotten to really work with and like one-on-one -on -one work with throughout all the processes of development of this play i i think not only have they seen that but they've also been extremely supportive of that and um know that they that there's this like whole community of people that they have not really tapped into before um because those people don't haven't come because those people haven't been reached out to you know um and yeah and haven't the work hasn't been made accessible to them and i think lealina at least even though it was a workshop production it wasn't even like the full thing it was just a chance for us to try it out see what it feels like as a sketch of a show um, and see what audiences like, don't like. And I think, you know, I just feel extremely proud that because of that work, um, because of all the hours of work that we put into trying to make it right for our community, whether that was in the casting, in the design of it, um, me and Sivan talking randomly for hours on the phone throughout, you know, months just trying to plot and um trying to get an amazing room together that would just grow and you know people who would challenge each other and really it was just beautiful and so besides being grateful and excited i'm proud of us and just yeah it really just goes to show i think so many things <laughs> um it helped me tap into pockets of communities and people that I would have never tapped into. Um, it's brought me closer to my Assyrian community that I kind of started to neglect when I started coming out and exploring my queerness for fear of like backlash or fear of not accepting me. Um, and so there were, I mean, you know, there were a lot of people and also just groups of people that I, and spaces that I was actively avoiding for this fear. And my work, you know, the play happening really was able to bring a lot of people together and bring people, bring me closer to people that I had been not actively, but unconsciously avoiding um, for fear. And that, you know, <clears throat> I think one of the like to be cliche one of the themes of Learina, i think is like overcoming fears and i i was really i feel like i was i have been able to do that at every stage of development and that's because of the dope members of our community that we have um not just uh assyrians but just middle eastern people in general because those have been the rooms we've curated so it's just been incredibly beautiful it's just felt like a family every time we've done it and it's been a different family every time we've done it which is so cool um yeah well what a way to give a voice to 
people who are not often given a voice to in theater and what a way to like showcase their struggles and lives and just portray the kinds of things they deal with and the really just the universal themes they deal with but that like people from those backgrounds could also find accessible so you should absolutely be so proud like I said I'm I'm so excited can you tell us a little bit about just like a synopsis of the story I know you've like said a little bit here and there but the general synopsis of Leolina is that um Leal, who's the oldest sibling of a family, um, gets married and is, uh, her family's planning her immigration to the U.S. And due to some unforeseen circumstances, uh, her parents ask her to take their, her youngest two siblings with them to the, with her to the U.S. to raise them and to kind of be like a surrogate mom until the parents can join. And so that's kind of like the first act of Leolina, setting up who the family is and what they're trying to do. And then act two is 17 years later um, in Skokie, Illinois. And Leal has been living there for 17 years, raising her younger two siblings. And basically nothing from the plan has gone right. The entire kind of plan of immigrating and like where everyone's gonna go and who everyone's, you know, completely goes awry and the struggles are no longer about survival, but they're about like living together and loving each other and all while like holding each other's grief and holding each other's pain and stepping into each other's shoes to understand one another better. So it's about a lot of things, but um, I, I would say that's like the the loose synopsis. And the story centers Leal because she's the kind of, she's like the, you know, her existence and her being the oldest is like the inciting incident for the family. But it's not really just about Leal, it's about her whole family and how they all get separated and then have to come back together again to pick up the pieces. If any of you are in Chicago in March, be sure to catch it. And I'm sure that once once it's March of 23, we will post about it as well so people can hear yes. it. You talked a little bit about sort of coming out and like that part of your identity. And so I wanted to talk about intersectionality because none of us are just one thing. And so I think like the most true and authentic self of any of us comes from facing and also like exploring all of the facets of our identity and who we are. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's like what results in us finding ourselves, but it's probably like the hard part of finding ourselves too. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to explore kind of that topic with you and just talk to you about all the different facets of your identity and how you've come to the space you are now. You talked a little bit about like avoiding certain spaces because of any kind of backlash or anything like that. But like, what has it been like for you to kind of come to terms with all the different parts of you? My personal experience 
in Assyrian spaces or Assyrian communities um, has not been one of uh, acceptance and progressiveness and openness, um, or at least that was my perception of it based on kind of things I was hearing from my family, things my family told me, things I came to learn through other ways, you know, all these kind of different things that kind of contribute to something that you think or a certain perspective. And so I, like, when I came out, it wasn't, I didn't, like, publicly come out to my friends and, you know, the people who knew me until I moved to England. And that was kind of like my way of doing it. It was like, I'm going to go as far away as possible and then I'll do it and then it won't be a problem. But that was <laughs> silly. Obviously, you can't run away from things. So it, it it wasn't a problem, but it was still something I had to like deal with because that came with the baggage of not being able to come out to my family, which I still haven't done. So it took a while because I think being in really like, culturally Assyrian spaces felt triggering in a way because it felt like well I know I probably or I think I won't be accepted in this space and so why trigger myself to put myself in a position where I feel like I'm around family and still not be myself right so it was just like why would I need another group of Assyrians to be around who don't accept me for who I am I already have that and they're my blood you know um and that I think that took kind of like a lot of learning and that was coming from a place of insecurity and internalized stuff that I had believed about my community. Because actually, once I stepped back away from myself and looked out into the people, you know, people from high school, like Assyrians from high school who I didn't really like talk to in high school, but then were supporting me on social media and were like messaging me. And it really just like took me to open my eyes and be like, I, I actually, do have people from this community that I have been like yearning to reconnect with, but haven't found a way to do it because all the other ways were like religious spaces. Like a Syrian school was in the basement of a church. Church was church. So it was all these like really religious kind of conservative spaces. And those were my only way into like a Syrian groups. So yeah, once I grew up a little bit, dealt with the kind of internalized homophobia that I had from myself and my experience and really dealt with that and my insecurities is when I was able to like really take a deep breath and like realize, like, you know what I mean? See people for who they actually are, not who for who I had made them out to be. Um, there was a couple people that I, you know, that, that come to mind when I think about the people that I didn't really talk to in high school, but I remember wanting to, but we weren't really friends. And then after high school, I'm like, well, you were friends with this person and that person wasn't great. So maybe you, whatever the case may have been, it doesn't really matter now. But I realized that there were all these people who were like proud of me for like being in, being a working artist and being, not being like afraid to tell everyone I was a Syrian and really like owning that. And that was beautiful. Cause like, you know, I got to like make new friends as an adult with those people that I felt like I couldn't really reach as a kid so yeah I um it's in terms of like how I handle it all I think it's uh, a lifelong journey I don't think I'll ever stop figuring out how to best handle it but right now 
it has been through this work. It's been through, specifically through writing, because although this play is not about necessarily about an Assyrian family, or at least that's not said in the play, but every Assyrian who has come to see it is like, I know this family's Assyrian. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, they are. And really the only reason they're not like prescriptively an Assyrian is because of my knowledge of this industry and my knowledge of audience capacity. <laughs> and like, there is only so many new things you can teach an audience in one play. And I felt like I'm not gonna just throw this in, like it's some like throwaway thing. And if you miss it, you miss it. Like, no, if I'm gonna write a play about an Assyrian family, it's gonna be very about them being Assyrian. And like that, this play wasn't about that. It was more about a queer family who is breaking apart and then finding themselves again, finding each other again. So yeah, I think the way that I have been dealing with it and the best, most fulfilling way has been through my work because I am able, as you can probably tell, as everyone will be able to tell after this podcast is I ramble and ramble and I'm way better when I can speak as other people uh, through fictional people than talking myself because I'm just more articulate through them. I don't know why. I guess it just makes me feel like, like the thing that it reminds me is you had a certain perception about the perception other people would have about you. And Absolutely. so you created this story in your head about like what their reaction to you would be like. And that sort of kept you from forming those bonds. Um, and then once you were actually able to like break free of that narrative in your head, you were able to like, see them for who they are, but also give them an opportunity to see you for who you are. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I realized that, you know, me taking that, not taking, but like me putting that perspective on the people that I did that to, because of the bad apples who treated me that way, was me doing exactly what Americans do about us when they assume things and generalize us and, you know, kind of like, this group is all like this, you know. I took my one to two kind of really bad experiences and I put them on every Assyrian that I came into contact with. Not on purpose, but because I was like, well, you must be like this other person because that's how this other person treated me. And so I guess we can't be friends or like, I can't really be myself around you. Um, Which I can't, I can't blame you for because you're also trying to protect yourself and it's absolutely. a form absolutely. of self-defense. So I get that too. I also just always wonder about the experiences that I've heard about of my friends coming out to their friends or, you know, not coming out to their families at all because they just don't see a world in which they could. And so like compartmentalizing in that way and like having the need to be a different person when they're with their families and then constantly trying to remember like does this person know does this person know like you know what am i doing and i always think about that and like genuinely pray for a world where like no one has to do that but Me i know too. that yeah but i know that that is the reality for so many people my heart aches, but like also like I hope that in meeting more people, you find a way to like be yourself comfortably in more spaces. 
And I, yeah, I, I mean, I really appreciate you saying that. And I, I have, you're totally right about that compartmentalization. And at the same time, I feel like me not being out to my family, like the one I accepted that, that I did not need their validation or support to be who I am. And that this was a part of me that was going to be a part of me, no matter what they said or had to say about it. Once I realized that and when is when I really started living my life in a kind of beautiful, free way. But also is when I started realizing, like, me and my family have never had a friend relationship. That's just never been any of our dynamics. It's always been a familial, caring, and kind of, like, dutiful relationship. And, yeah, do I wish I was, like, friends with my mom? Yes. But that was never going to be my situation, whether I was straight or not. So it was like, I just like when I realized like, oh, this actually doesn't really change anything about my relationship with them, them not knowing because I don't need their approval. I don't seek their validation. I don't need their permission. I'm living my life exactly how I want to live it. And if me not telling them the details of my love and sexual life is going to make me continue having a relationship with them. That's what I'm choosing for now. And is that compartmentalization? Yes, absolutely. Um, I don't want to give my mom a heart attack. So I'm choosing this option where we're both happy until that option is not an option anymore. And I feel it. I feel like the time is coming. I feel like an impending kind of uh, opening coming in the future and I, it just hasn't that time hasn't come yet and that's okay um because it hasn't needed to you know yeah. i live i live my authentic life i don't hide i don't pretend i don't try to be something i'm not um and when i'm with my family there's some things i don't talk about but you know it's it's like, like I said, even if I was straight, I would not be talking about any of those things with my family. So it's like, there's nothing has changed. It's like, do I wish that they were more open and progressive and didn't feel like that? Yes. Um, is it worth me not talking to them ever again? No. And when if it ever gets to that point, then great. And I will move on with that in mind. But that's, you know, that's not been my experience so far. So it's been like... I don't know how else to explain it. It's definitely not advice I would ever give someone. <laughs> it's not something I would ever tell someone to go do or to strive for, but um, that's a decision I had to make for myself. But I think what I appreciate is your honesty about, you know, like what matters to you and what what you need to do to maintain like your mental health and like be good with who you exactly. are. Exactly, because I'm the one who's going to have to deal with all that. Right. Not just them. <laughs> right. But also, I think that your earnestness in, like, this is the relationship I have with my family. And although I wish it were different, this is what it is. And I want them in my life still because, you know, they're still your parents and siblings yeah. and whatever. So yeah. I appreciate your honesty uh, to be yeah. frank about that, like, and just being able to talk about it in that way. For sure. And I, I appreciate you allowing me to because, it you know, like I said, it's not 
like I said, it's not something I'm recommending to anyone or telling young queer people like, just hide it, it's better, like at all. That's just, that's been my unfortunate experience. And I've found a way to not make it unfortunate because now the very few times I am with my family, it's great. And I get to be with my nieces and nephews, which is the thing that matters the most to me. Like. You know, I run some errands for my sisters. I'm mostly spent babysitting, which is why I'm there in the first place and what I like to do the most. And I wouldn't trade that just so that I can say this thing about myself to them. It just, it's not that important to me. Um, it doesn't change who I am. So it's kind of like, do I wish that my family was different people in terms of being open and maybe more progressive? Yes. but. Do I wish that over not ever talking to them again? Like, no. And I know that that would be the result. So until I am wanting that, yeah. you know, I've made something else work for me. Can I ask you something? And if like you don't want to answer this, it's okay. It's literally yeah. just, do you ever fear or wonder if like they already know or they've found out from someone else and like they, they haven't heard it from you and what their reaction would be if like they didn't hear it directly from you and like what that would be like i don't wonder about it anymore okay. because i truly don't know anymore okay i feel like i've had moments where i felt like i've known and one way or another and i think that you know i've kind of made up my mind that i actually don't know because people ask me this all the time especially with my mom, they'll be like, don't you think your mom knows? And sometimes I'm like, yes, she used to get me flower printed bed sheets. She would like, she knew that I was always playing in her shoes and like playing in the pots and pans in the kitchen while my brother was like, you know, probably beating something up <laughs> downstairs. You know, like there, I've always been different and my parents will always tell me stories about the ways that I was different. Like, oh, you always used to do this. And I'm like, <laughs> and y'all didn't know <laughs> you know i'm like oh i wore your heels and danced around as like a four-year-old in the pots and pans like i don't know um obviously not generalizing queer experiences but in a way i'm that that those things will make me think like okay you have to know but then like other times like literally a month ago my I didn't get my ears pierced until I moved to LA because I knew that it would be a conversation if my mom saw them. And I was FaceTiming with her one day and I forgot that I hadn't told her about them. And she saw them and literally got so mad and was like, yeah, it was, just, was like so mad about them. And then I was like, oh, this is because to you, this means your son might be gay. <laughs> and so you must know that that's something that, that that that's like even a conversation you know what i mean yeah it's an uh, outward it's an outward expression of something that she might have known but that like it wasn't expressed outwardly and now there's a more blatant sign of it and that she has exactly to exactly exactly and then it took her like a week to call me like to talk to me again and i'm like well, if these did it for you, then I wonder what 
what you're going to do with the real, you know, with the real thing. So, yeah, I honestly, I, I used to think that I knew whether they knew or not. Um, I don't know anymore. And what I do know is that I'm 100% sure that coming out to them would have a negative impact. And I, you know, don't really want to go into why I know that 100%, but I do. And so it really is, honestly, at this point, it's become a selfish thing of like, do I want to deal with that? Yeah. Because I don't need it. <laughs> I don't need it to validate anything in my life. I'm already living my life. Um, um, do I wish that like, you know, they could meet my partner? Yes. Do I wish that I could like bring him to holidays and, you know, yes, all, all those things. But my partner understands and is Swana too. And, you know, so to me, it's like, you know, they're not stopping me from living my life. So like, if that means that I don't say the words I'm gay to them, then like, that's, you know, I'm way past that. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I, I get it. And I think that, I don't know. I feel like when I was in college, it's been a long time since I was in college, but I remember that in college there were like professors that I had who had come out in like, you know, the seventies and eighties and maybe nineties. And to them that meant a different thing than people I'm meeting now. And I know now, and like people who are in my circle of friends or family who have the same exact, like, viewpoint as you do probably because of like the cultural thing and like the role family plays in our culture in general but also just in general just being like I don't need to say it you know um if you know you know and if you don't it's fine like I am who I am and so it's, I feel like yeah. this is like this generation which makes me happy because like we've come you know we've come to a point where like maybe oh, people my God. It, you know, and That's, like, oh, yeah, I completely. I think yeah. I I not only see why, but I agree with yeah. the fact that sometimes it needs to just be said, just for the act of saying it, and for it to sink into someone's head, or to you know, if that's what it takes. And I couldn't agree with that more. But I do think that everyone has to find their own yeah. kind of journey with coming out. Um, whatever that means to them and everyone's got to do what's best for them because at the end of the day you're the one who's going to have to deal with that like yeah. me doing that to my family is not just me doing something to them it's also opening up a whole thing that I have to now do to educate and to you know all of these things that I already know aren't going to be possible because yeah. I will not have contact with them and so yeah. I've been really enjoying the little ways that I can make an impact on their learning and their education about other things that give me hope for the future. Because I'm already seeing that all my nieces and nephews don't have a, even like 15% of the prejudice that my family carries. None of them have it. They're all incredibly smart and so young, like ranging from two years, you know, three years old to like 15. They're all so smart and aware. And I know that when they're old enough and I can come out to them, there will be nothing but hugs and, you know, celebration. Not that, you know, by then it'll 
I'll have been gay for so long, it won't matter. <laughs> but I, you know, I, it's like I, they are the reason why I feel like validated in my decision with this, with my family, because if I were to choose myself in this situation and say, I need to come out to them, I wouldn't have access to them. Yeah. And I wouldn't have access to my nieces and nephews. And that is like 99% of the reason why I even still hang out with my family or make an effort to see them is because of those kids. So thank you so much for sharing this. Really appreciate you holding space for it and allowing me to talk about it. I think it's really important. And um, it's not often that I get to talk about my work in Assyrian spaces because my work is very queer and my work does not, you know, kind of give you the traditional Assyrian story. Um, so I really appreciate you giving me the chance to not only talk about my work, but how that, how my life and this conversation has influenced my work and yeah. um, why I've chosen to write the play I have written. If you had one thing to say to all the Assyrians that are listening, what would that be? I um, have uh, gotten into the conversation of um, an Assyrian land with a lot of Assyrians and this kind of like fight for land fight for our land that we occupied, that we were displaced out of, that we were killed in, um, genocided against, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I understand that fight. I empathize with it. I, I get it. And as a, as a naturally non-nationalized person, like, I, you know, I've, I've, I've never sought um, kind of like comfort or any kind of meaning in my nationality. Like ethnicity, yes. My culture, yes. Um, but nationality has never done it for me. It's never the, been the thing that like, ah, oh, I'm proud to be an Iraqi. Like I am, but for other reasons, right? Not because it's, because someone drew those borders. And so I've been, having a lot of amazing conversations with other Assyrians and with myself in terms of my work is like, how do I, and how do we recreate that safety that we're all, cause like everyone, when they speak of an Assyrian land are seeking safety, they want safety and they want a place that we can call ours, that we can be ourselves in, that we can speak our language in, that we can be proud of, you know, what we've built together in. And I think for me, I've been finding that no matter where I am, and that, that has been a really beautiful process to kind of find that part of me and that space of comfort and safety and creativity, but without land, without borders, without um, this kind of instated politics and what, you know, and, and everything that like comes with that. Um, so I think my advice would be like to every Assyrian would be like to find that and to make it because we don't need, we just don't need a government to tell us th these things. We don't need, we're like, we shouldn't be waiting on people who oppressed and displaced us to give us that. We don't, that's just, you know, there's not anything I'm gonna spend time fighting for. 
what I'm going to spend time fighting for is recreating that feeling and that space wherever I am and wherever I choose to, whoever I choose to do it with. So that would be my thing. And that's it for this week. Thank you for making space for this story and making time to listen to another one of our episodes. See you next Tuesday.